there was a time not too long ago when I was speaking at a retreat. And, you know, usually retreat speakers, we, we go in and we're supposed to give like four or five really fire messages. We pull from our archives and choose our best sermons. And I remember I came in, I did my thing, I thought I preached really well, and then I left. And I thought everything was great. Like, I thought I preached really well. The altar call was amazing. Everything was flowing so good. And as I was processing with God after I got home, I I felt like God asking me, so how did that go for you? And I was just telling him, oh, man, God, I was praying. Like, I felt like it went really well. I felt like I I flowed smoothly. I felt like I spoke eloquently. I, I felt like I connected with the audience. I felt really good about how I preach. And then I felt him ask me, like, kind of nudge me a little further. He said, how, how well did you love? I was like, you know, I love really well because my stories, it connected with people, my, my points, it really hit. But I, I felt him ask again and, and dive deeper and said, but how well did you love? What are some of the faces you remember or some of the names? Who did you actually connect with or talk with? And honestly, in that moment, I realized I couldn't really give a good answer. And it's not that God was condemning me for just going in and preaching. That was my job. But I think he was challenging me that somehow, sometimes, we can do a lot of things for God. We can do a lot of things in our lives, but still miss the most important thing, which is to be present in love. And I think that's something that Jesus embodied. When we're talking about this collection, wrapping it up, what's the point of all of this? What's the point of become emotionally healthy? What's the end goal of spiritual maturity? And I think we can get lost in a lot of the hows, but the why is an important question. Because the ultimate goal of emotionally healthy spirituality is that we would grow in love for people. That is the end goal. That's the mark of emotional health. That's the mark of spiritual maturity. How well do we love others? Are people around us able to experience a greater degree of love because we're becoming more whole? Have we healed from the wounds of our past that keep us from loving people well in our lives? Is why Paul In 1 Corinthians, on the quintessential chapter of love, he says this, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor... And give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love. I gain nothing. That line, that last line wrecked me. To think that someone can give all their possessions to the poor, but still miss love, tells me that we can do a lot of things that might earn good merit, but still miss love. If I write the most beautiful prayers and sing the most amazing worship songs, but don't love well, I've missed the point. If I attend therapy sessions regularly, have all the tools to not be triggered and to be whole, but I don't love well, I've missed the point. Love is the mark of maturity. Love is the mark of wholeness. And how sad is it that some of the least loving people we can think of have been attending church their entire lives? I think that's the saddest thing. Or we all know that one friend that goes to therapy religiously and has been for years, but I still cannot stand to be around them. Nothing has changed. Love is the mark of maturity. Love is the goal. 
There is a theologian and pastor named Martin Buber who once wrote about this encounter that he had. And he had a meeting with some unknown young man that just came into his office and they had a conversation. He says while he was physically there, um, he wasn't fully present. So he was there, but he wasn't really there. Have you ever been there? Some of you are there right now, right? You're here, but you're not really here. You're there, but you're not really there. And the meeting went fine and everything was good. Conversation flowed, but Boober got through it in autopilot mode, right? Some of us You know how to get through meetings and and hangouts in autopilot mode. It went by just like any other meeting. He got through it. It was over. But what happened not long after that, one of the friends of the person that he saw came and saw him and told him that that person had actually taken his own life. And in that moment, Buber realized that the young man hadn't come to him as casually as he thought. He came, and it was born of destiny. He realized he didn't come for a chat before a decision. And while we can't blame him for not, you know, reading the cues or anything, but he wondered how differently things might have turned out had he chosen to be more present and how to embody love in that moment, to look beyond the surface and ask, how can I love well in this moment? How can I be truly present with the person God has sent into my doors to discern what the questions he was asking really meant and to discern what the questions he wasn't asking actually was saying? And in all of this, Buber actually, he, he developed two distinct ways, two ways to categorize how we are with another person. And he calls it the I-it relationship and the I-thou relationship. Look to the neighbor and say, I-it relationship. Look to the other neighbor, I-thou relationship. One is a posture of an I moving toward an it or an object. Right? The other is the posture of an I moving toward a thou or a person. In other words, when we relate to people as objects or a means to an end or something to gratify something that we need inside of ourselves, we treat them as an it. But when we treat people as sacred or holy, when we treat them as another whole human being, we treat them as a thou. And just to give you a distinction between the two, we have this list. Um, is the chart there? Yeah. So in I-it relationships, you're distracted and goal-oriented versus in I-thou relationships, fully attentive and listening-oriented. In I-it, others are objects or extensions of oneself. In I-thou, others are persons unique and separate. In I-it, judgmental and conditional acceptance versus non-judgmental and radical acceptance and I, it, there's monologues and debates, and I have to make my point. And I, thou, there's dialogue, exploration, and curiosity. And I, it, withhold myself, limited sharing. And I, thou, offer myself vulnerable self-disclosure. And in I, it, closed and unwilling to learn or change. But in I, thou, you're open, willing to learn and change. So what does it look like to have an I-it relationship? I have a few examples I'm just going to read off. Number one, it could look like I maintain eye contact while listening to someone, but my mind the entire time is focusing on what to say next. Come on, you've been there? Number two, I pass a maintenance worker in my building without saying hello. Another example, I'm more concerned with what I'm saying than about how it's connecting with the other person I'm talking to. Ooh, that'll preach. 
I judge people based on the schools they attended, where they're from, where they work, and convictions can sweep across the room according to their Enneagram type. Y'all fours? No, I love fours. Fours are my favorite people. But sevens, sevens are just the worst, right? I approach someone with the singular goal of getting them to accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And so it seems like I'm approaching in love, but I want a desired outcome. But in I-thou relationships, we recognize each person as unrepeatable image bearers of God. We treat each individual as sacred and worthy of love. We don't try to get something for them or treat them as extensions of ourselves. I think oftentimes we get frustrated when people don't see things as we do because we're actually treating them as an extension of ourselves instead of uniquely distinct people with their own set of values, opinions, and personhood. But in I, thy, thou encounters, we come to the other without preconditions, without masks or pretenses or agendas. We're completely available to them, seeking to understand them, and not just on our terms. It's a living relationship, a whole person to another whole person. Wouldn't you love if people treated you more like a thou instead of an it? And this is how God calls us to treat others. But most importantly, We welcome other people's otherness, their differences, acknowledging how different they are from us without feeling the need to change them to look more like us. This is a hard one. True I-thou relationships, Martin Buber says, can only exist when two people are willing to connect across their differences. And what God does is he he begins to supernaturally occupy the space between them, making it a sacred space. Listen, if your entire life is an echo chamber of people that look like you, that dress like you, that think like you, that vote like you, you're actually missing out on one of two things. Number one, the chance to grow in love, right? It's so easy to love people who are like us, but love is most powerfully expressed when it's not convenient for, for us to love another person. Love is most powerfully expressed when we have to allow God to occupy the space between our differences. So we miss out on our chance to grow in love. But number two, we miss out on experiencing God in the space between our differences. One of my favorite experiences was serving with City Impact here in the city where we got to spend time with people living in the Tenderloin District. And one of the most no, like, remarkable things that happened was I encountered people that were so radically different from me on every level, just so different from me. And what I noticed is that the differences, the space between us and the differences, God began to do a sacred work. There was a deep connection, a deep love that began happening, that we were able to love and see each other and treat each other as human beings. And this is what God does. He occupies the space between our differences when we learn to look at one another, not as its, but as thou's. And so how do we live this out every day? How do we treat others as thou's and not it's? How do we practice the presence of people the way we practice the presence of God? David Benner, in his book, Spiritual, Soulful Spirituality, he offers us three questions to consider. The first is this, am I fully present or distracted? Number two, am I loving or judging? And number three, am I open or closed to being changed? Very challenging questions. When I read this, I was like, nope, 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 really bad. 
Am I fully present or distracted? Research has shown that our ability to have face-to-face conversations with eye contact and emotional connection has dramatically decreased over the last 15 to 20 years. Uh, we could say thanks to social media and the internet, and, and including the, the crazy global pandemic that we've been living through over the past few years. But this makes it all the more important that we be intentional about being fully present with someone when we are with them. And we all know how easy it is not to be present, to be there without really being there. You're having a conversation with someone, but you're thinking about all the things you need to get done for work that night. You're talking to that person after church, but you actually really just want to get out of there, go home, and just veg out. Come on, that's real. You're you're spending time with a friend, but both of you are constantly checking your phone or your social media accounts. One thing I love about Chick-fil-A is they used to have these boxes where you sit down And if you put your phone in the box and leave it in there for the entire meal, you get a free ice cream cone. And I think we should do that at every restaurant, right? When you're with a friend, to be fully present and you get a free ice cream cone everywhere you go. Henry Nguyen, he says, to care, first of all, means to be present to each other. From experience, you know that those who care for you become present to you. When they listen, they listen to you. When they speak, they speak to you. Their presence is a healing presence because they accept you on your terms and they encourage you to take your own life seriously. Am I present or am I distracted? Number two, am I loving or judging? When people outside the church describe Christians, one of the first words that comes to mind is what? Judgmental. And who can blame them? We're often known more for what we're against than what we're for. Is it sad that in this cultural moment, when people are looking at the church, the loudest thing that we're screaming is that we are anti-abortion versus this is actually what we're for. We are for life. And yet the call from Christ is that we would be a people known for love. Yet it seems we do a lot more judging than loving. We judge our spouses for not doing life our way. We judge our close friends when their politics differ from our own. We judge our family members for making choices we think they shouldn't. We judge our coworkers for not doing their jobs as well as we'd like. We judge Hindus, Muslims, Buddhists, Sikhs, and other faiths, along with atheists and agnostics for not following Jesus. We judge younger or older generation, boomers, come on, now millennials, we are judged very, we are under heavy scrutiny. We judge people for their different social class, race, ethnicity, appearance, or education. We judge them from dressing up or dressing down for the movies they watch, the cars they buy, or the music they listen to. We even judge people based on their Enneagram number. We judge. And when we judge people, we turn our differences into virtues of moral superiority. In other words, who's right and who's wrong? Who's better and who's worse off? Who's faithful to God and who's disobedient? And in doing so, we create a never-ending ways to reduce people into our categories and dehumanize them. That's what happens when we judge. And we think we're oracles from God. I had to say God that way, right? No, when we judge people, we reduce their humanity. You might be saying, but isn't it, Pastor Mickey, isn't it our mission as Christians to, um, you know, get people to change and believe what we believe. And yes, we want people to experience the love of Christ. Yes, we want people to partake in this grand mission of rebuilding the earth in shalom. But no, it's not a part of our missions to judge people, to judge people into that place. Only God has the right and the wisdom to judge another person. Buber, who I mentioned earlier, coined this term, mismeeting. 
to describe a failure of real meeting when people get together. A mismeeting happens when we get together and we judge people or we treat them as objects or diminish them in any other way. And he says a real meeting can only happen when we see and engage the other as a co-equal human being. And this means coming to every conversation curious, even when people are making choices we consider foolish or wrong. Our first task as Jesus followers is to see each person as a thou, sincerely asking, tell me more. Help me understand how you see the world and how you came to that decision or conclusion. And this can include why someone decided to get gender reconstructive surgery or someone left the church to convert to another religion or decided to move in with their partner. We can still love people that believe differently than we do. But for some reasons, I feel like Christians are weird around this stuff. Like when someone leaves our church, it's like, oh, I'm not really your friend anymore. Or when someone's values don't align with your own, we cut them off. But that would be treating someone as an it instead of a thou. Last question, am I open or closed to being changed? This question, I think, is a deal breaker for many people in the church, especially when dealing with other people that aren't Christian, because why should I be open-minded Um, to being changed, especially when something we consider a fundamental value or something that we know about the other person is quote-unquote wrong. But we need to be open to being changed because it's a requirement for dialogue. Come on, have you ever entered into a conversation with someone that was not open to being changed? It's like their entire, the entire conversation is no longer a dialogue. It's a monologue. It's a debate. It's an argument. Here's the thing. If you really have confidence in what you believe, you shouldn't be afraid to put it all on the table, trusting that truth will win out. And this doesn't mean there's no absolute truth. Last time I checked, the earth still isn't flat. You didn't get COVID from 5G. There's some very objective truths, but at the same time, it's biblical to engage another image bearer of God with a posture of openness, to assume I can learn from and be changed by you. It baffles me how I had the most confident stance of theology for the LGBTQ community when I didn't have a single gay friend. Like, I was so sure. And as soon as I began a relationship and I came with the posture of openness, God began developing further, making my theology, making what I believe sacred. But I think different makes us uncomfortable. We always assume that it's others that need a change and not us. Yet God calls us to be with and to love people who see and experience the world differently than we do. And we can do so without compromising our truth and the way of Jesus. And we do this by entering into conversations as humble listeners who are open to true dialogue. Ronald Rollheiser, he wrote, Once, there is a marvelous story about a four-year-old child who awoke one night frightened, convinced that in the darkness around her there were all kinds of spooks and monsters. Alone, she ran to her parents' bedroom. Her mother calmed her down and, taking her by the hand, led her back to her own room where she put on a light and reassured the child with these words, You needn't be afraid. You are not alone here. God is in the room with you. The child replied, I know that God is here but I need someone in this room who has some skin. And how true has that been in your life? Like, okay, I know God's here, but sometimes I just need a hug. Sometimes I just need a listening or sometimes I just need someone to take me out and get some boba with me. This was the calling of Jesus who came as God with skin. 
In other words, God's presence in physical form, incarnational love. And it's our calling now as well. We are to be God's presence in skin for the people around us. The body, the church in whom God dwells becomes the manifestation of his love for the world. In other words, the world will know God's love through his people. And this is why it's not only saddening but infuriating to me that the world thinks of the church when the world thinks of the church, loving is not the first thing that comes to mind. From the LGBTQ plus community to people of color to women right now in this cultural moment, what's at stake is misrepresenting the love of God to the world, which is why we must practice being with God in skin. Now we're going to end just with three practical takeaways. The life of Jesus teaches us three ways that we can be God in skin for others, to love people well, to be present. The first one is this, enter another's world. Just as God left heaven to come into our world, we too must leave our world and enter into the very different world of another person. Um, Pete Scazzaro, who we drew a lot of resources from for this collection, he actually distinguishes unhealthy togetherness versus healthy togetherness. And this is how he defines unhealthy togetherness, right? There's a blending of who I am and who you are. And so sometimes we enter into relationship and we treat others as an extension of ourselves. We treat them and we expect them to have the same values, the same ideals, the same goals. And it's hard to tell where we end and where that person begins. This is unhealthy togetherness, but this is healthy togetherness. When we're able to recognize someone as a uniquely distinct person with their own sets of hopes, thoughts, beliefs, feelings, values, and fears, and we can still be together despite those differences. Healthy togetherness recognizes and respects the other person regardless of how different we are. The Gospels are filled with accounts of Jesus choosing to be present and entering into people's worlds who are radically different from him. Matthew, Nathaniel, the prostitute, Nicodemus, the blind man, the Samaritan woman, and many others. He took the time to enter into their worlds, not for the sake of trying to change them, but simply to be present so that he can love them. I think there's something really powerful about that. He honored each person's separateness and uniqueness while still loving them and being present in their lives. You know, I've heard Christian leaders say, Jesus dined with sinners but they didn't leave sinners. Mic drop and walk away. Jesus dined with sinners. He hung out with sinners, but they didn't leave sinners. And, you know, they kind of say it as a critique to believers who spend time with non-Christians and fail to see them converted or transformed or changed as if their time with them was in vain or a waste. But I think this is a gross misrepresentation of God's heart. Did Jesus only spend time with people he knew would change? Did he only hang out with sinners because he hoped to convert them or get them to repent? Did he only dine with people to get something from them? And is that love? I'd like to believe in Christ who was present with people for one purpose and one purpose only, to love. Despite the outcome. Despite if they got saved or if they repented or turned to him, I think the goal was love. Hear me, church. This might be a hot take, but our goal in this city is not to see each and every person saved. What? 
Did you really just say that, Pastor? I'm leaving the church. No, our goal in this city is not to see each and every person saved. Our goal is to see each and every person loved. Why? Because when salvation is the goal, we become like car salesmen, right? We become transactional. We only love and care for people so that we can get something in return. And people can sniff through that so quickly. And it's disingenuous. It's not love. I don't want to love people to get a desired outcome. I don't want to love people just so they could ascribe to my beliefs and my values. I want to love people for the sake of love. I want to love people to love people. See, when love is the goal, salvation is the fruit. Our job is not to save people. Our job is not to convert people. Our job is to love people. And I think if we would do a lot more loving, entering into another's world without any pretense, or expectations just simply to love and be present, I think we would see a lot more fruit than we're bearing right now. And it begins by entering into another's world and learning to be present. Number two, hold on to yourself. We must enter into another's world, but also we have to hold on to ourselves. When we enter into someone else's world, it takes great maturity and differentiation to hold on to our sense of self. And we're often tempted to give up ourselves, our values, our opinions, our preferences, our needs to tend to another person. But look at Jesus. In living faithfully to his true self, Jesus, he disappointed a lot of people. He disappointed his family He often disappointed his friends. He often disappointed the religious leaders, his disciples. I mean, look at Judas, right? He disappointed a hell of a lot of people. And almost everyone seemed to have their own expectations and pressures that they imposed on his life. Yet Jesus, through it all, was able to enter into people's worlds but still remain true to himself. Why? Jesus was secure in the Father's love. He held on to himself as he loved those around him. And as a result, he was able to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of great stress. I think some of us, however, are too easily, we take on the, the opinions and the expectations of the people around us, and we become like chameleons, always living in anxiety. Who do I have to become in this social circle? Who do I have to become to this person? Who do I have to become to my parents or to my pastors or to my boss? Who do I have to become? And we're always shape-shifting instead of staying true to ourselves when we enter into another's worlds. Maybe you were hurt by a coworker's comment, but you didn't say anything because you don't want to be thought of as overly sensitive or judgmental. Maybe you were invited, maybe you guys are going to experience this more and more. You're invited to a wedding on a Saturday night, but it's like three hours away. It's your destination wedding, and you don't want to attend, but you don't want to disappoint the people that are inviting you. Maybe you have a team member who's underperforming and holding back the rest of the team and you hint at the need for change, but they're not getting the message. And so instead of causing that person to be angry and confronted, you just go to another team member to get it done, right? Or maybe a friend uses inappropriate language around you, some of which is racist or demeaning, and you say nothing because you don't want to rock the boat, The degree to which you love and value yourself and hold on to who God created you to be is the degree to which you'll be able to love and accept other people for their differences. And the last, live in the tension between two worlds. If we enter into another's world and we hold on to ourselves, the last thing to do is to live in the tension between those two spaces. 
Living in the tension between two worlds occurs when we listen deeply, even though we may not fully agree with what the other person is saying, and doing so without growing reactive or impatient or becoming defensive, allowing them to be themselves while holding on to a sense of who we truly are. Jesus lived his entire life in this tension. He always lived in the tension between heaven and earth. And even in his last moments alive, as he hung on the cross, he hung between the tension of heaven and earth. Whenever we make the incarnation our model for loving people well, we will experience tension and pain. It'll be uncomfortable. I mean, some of you might be like amening to a lot of this stuff, but you're like, I can't do it. It's just too hard. There's too much tension, too much pain, tension with a spouse or a friend or a supervisor or a sibling or a coworker, a neighbor or a person from a different race, culture, a different class. There's too much tension. It's too uncomfortable. It's too hard. It's too impossible. But hear me, church, this tension is good. In fact, I would argue if you don't feel the tension of this in your life, then you're not doing enough. You're not making an effort to actually love, which is our mandate. The tension is good. And hear me, church, this doesn't mean we repeatedly throw ourselves into trauma. There are some situations where we should be removed from because it's damaging to our souls. But what I'm saying is with the boundaries that you discern with the Holy Spirit, when is it appropriate for me to enter into someone's world while still holding on to myself and wrestle in the tension between the two? I believe it's necessary more than ever. And this is the tension that helps us grow in love, entering into another's world holding on to ourselves, and living in the tension between the two. So I want to invite you right now to have a moment with God. Why don't we close our eyes as we invite God into this moment? I don't know if any of this resonated with you or you felt conviction in any area, but I do believe that God is challenging us as the church to embody his love. And I think now more than ever, we need to embody that love. I was... um, with everything that was going on this weekend, with the overturning of Roe v. Wade, I was on social media, and my social media was wild. I was telling Fatai this because I had so many people that were, like, unabashedly celebrating, and then I had so many people that were angry and hurt and scared and confused. And I had this moment. I was like, if Jesus were alive here today in this cultural moment, where would he be? And as I was praying and discerning, I just couldn't shake off this idea that Jesus would be with the brokenhearted. He would be with those who are afraid. He would be with those who are unsure. He would be with those who are lacking peace, who are hurt, who are broken in this moment. And I thought, if that's where Jesus is, this is where we need to be as the church. And it made me so sad to see that so many Christians are on the other side, celebrating when there's so much brokenness and hurt. And I think for us, this is a cultural moment where we have the opportunity to step up and embody love. Despite what you might believe or what your politics or your ethics are, regardless, love transcends that. And it allows to enter into another person's suffering or questions or hurt or anger and say, I'm here, even if I don't agree. Right now, God, I pray that we would embody your love in this cultural moment.